The book of Jude, we'll be continuing our lesson in Jude this morning. A fascinating and interesting account as he looks at particularly some Old Testament passages in our reading in our sermon today and draws application from them to really to all time. Uh, I really love Jude's use of the Old Testament to make his points. And as I was finishing the sermon, I was thinking today, I really should, since he has three Old Testament passages he uses, I should have preached three Old Testament sermons and then this sermon. (laughs) But I didn't do that. So we'll have three mini sermonettes from those three today. Uh, Really some interesting stuff. Uh, The Old Testament, some people disregard it. But I want to remind you, Romans 15.4, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So those things were written for us. And Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians 10, 9 and following. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and was destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. So these Old Testament stories are very important to us as believers to help us understand, and Jude uses them in that very manner. So let us first read in Jude, we'll... We'll be looking at verse 11 today. I'd hope to get 11 to 13, but 11 will be enough. And we'll read 3 to 16. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones, but when an archangel of Michael, the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by what, all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, 
They feast without any fear. Shepherds feeding only themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom gloom and utter darkness have been reserved forever. It was about these also that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents. Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, it is a troubling thing to come to these passages and to read your denunciations and judgments and condemnations upon false teachers and false leaders. And as we look at these passages today, we ask, Lord, you to lift up and encourage our hearts that we might turn away from such things and turn to things which are pleasing to you that we might turn away from things that bring your wrath and focus our hearts on knowledge to glorify your name and to enjoy you forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, he starts off in our passage, while well, we're, we're continuing really from the previous section, these people who rely on their dreams, you know, their, their feelings, their emotions, their visions, their false prophecies, the things they desire. He's still talking about those people who crept in long ago or who crept in unnoticed and long ago were condemned. And that was always part of God's plan. And he starts off going all the way back to the beginning to talk about Cain. They walked in the way of Cain. Now we all know the story of Cain. But there are some key points that we sometimes overlook that Jude is bringing out in his passage. So back in Genesis 4, I'm going to read the first 16 verses because we need to get the picture in our heads. But I want you to think about what Cain did and why he did it and how that might apply to these false teachers. So Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock with their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings. But for Cain and his offerings, he had no regard. So Cain was angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? 
And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said to him, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is prying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive the, your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and away from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and said it, Settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Story we're all probably familiar with, but the implications of it we may not really think about clearly. Uh, the first one I want to point out to you is who is the Lord here? The Lord is appearing to them and speaking to them directly, face to face. But we know no one has ever seen God. When Moses wanted to see the glory of God in Exodus 33, we read this, verse 18 and following. Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you, that the Lord, that Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I show mercy. And he said, verse 20, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. Do not see me and live. We can't see God because we are sinners. And God is perfect and pure in his holiness. Now, if you notice in the Genesis 4 chapter, the Lord there is in all caps or small caps, depending on your Bible. You know, that's the covenant name, Yahweh. That's the name of the triune God. He's saying God himself, Yahweh, stood before them and spoke. John says in, or we read in John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So Jesus has made God known, but nobody has seen God. But we have seen Jesus. Jesus says, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. John four forty six and John fourteen nine. I have been... He's asked to show us the Father, and he says, Have I been with you so long that you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So who is speaking here? Well, Jude makes it plain earlier when he mentions Jesus' name in regards to the destruction of the people in the Exodus. Um, Jude says Jesus is the one who was with them, one who was dealing with them. And we understand these to be Jesus before his incarnation appearing to them. Not, not an angel appearing in the name of God, but God himself. Why do I make this point? Well, in, back in that first, fifth verse of Jude, I remind you that although you once knew it fully, the Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Now, Jesus was there with them. Presumably, he was meeting with Moses face to face and sharing with him 
all of the things that we read were shared with him. Now, what is the way of Cain then? The second issue we might have. And the New Testament gives us some interpretations of that to help us understand where Cain went wrong and what his way is meaning in the book of Jude. Uh, first, we read here that Jude made an offering. or We read in Jude that Cain made an offering and Abel made an offering. Uh, the first fruits of the land were a required offering under the ceremonial law. If you plowed the field, planted grain, uh, planted grapes in a vineyard, or whatever else you might have grown, the first fruits, the best of the first fruits, belong to God. Uh, Exodus 23.19, obviously this is long after Cain, but the instructions to the people of Israel were, the, the best of the first fruits of your ground you should bring to the house of the Lord your God. Now, what was wrong with his offering then of the first fruits? We read in Hebrews 11.4 about Abel in the great hall of faith, right? Chapter 11 of Hebrews. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so we see that Cain's offering was more acceptable, and it was made an offering in faith. So what's the problem with what Cain did? What's wrong with his offering that made Abel's more acceptable? Some people here say, well, you know, must be about faith. Cain didn't have faith, or his offering wasn't acceptable. Uh, that's not what God says in the passage in Genesis 4. He says, if you do well, won't you be accepted? And there was something wrong with his offering then. We read in Hebrews chapter 9, 22, I think the key to this. says, indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. For sin to be forgiven, it has to be paid for. For it to be paid for, death. Not just the first death, but the second death. Eternal punishment in hell. And blood purifies us. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Christ, which it's pointing to. And we kind of see this hinted at in the account of Adam's sin. In Genesis 3, verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They had originally used leaves. Where did the garments of skin come from? Animals. What happened to the animals? They died. Um, God perhaps had already explained and showed to them the need of blood for the remission of sins. And so Abel brought sheep, goats, whatever, he sacrificed them to the Lord. He offered the burnt offering. He offered the fat portions to God, according to the text in Genesis 4. In other words, he made a sin offering to reconcile himself to God, and that made his offering acceptable. The grain offering, the first fruits offering, were only acceptable after, under the law of Moses, after they had been forgiven of their sins by offering the sin offering. 
which sin offering was symbolic of the work of Christ on the cross, of course. And so what was wrong with Abel's offering? Okay, yes. What was wrong with Cain's offering? If Abel's was acceptable because he offered blood, Cain made no offering for his sin. And indeed, as God talks to him about his sin, speaking to him there, you know, sin is crouching at the door, it's waiting for you. Sin is at hand. He wasn't able to accept it. He wasn't able to recognize it. He didn't see himself as needing to be purified. Now, we read in the story of Korah's rebellion, all the Lord's people you know, are holy. Why are you judging one over another? Was the source of the problem. Now, Cain apparently did not recognize himself as needing atonement. I think that's what his error was. But that's only part of the problem. Now, God was quite gracious to him. He warns him for his failing in the offering. He warns him about his bad heart. But we see his warning has no impact on Cain. Cain doesn't recognize sin as a problem. He doesn't recognize his attitude as a problem, his heart as a problem. But God was very gracious to him. What went wrong? Well, what happens when you rebuke somebody as God rebuked Cain? Proverbs chapter 9, 7 and 8 speak to this well. Whoever corrects a scoffer, scoffer here is one who rejects and ignores and has contempt for God in his law. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets for himself abuse. He who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Cain is described, particularly in the New Testament, as wicked, evil. His deeds were evil. God rebukes him and he is angry with God. Why then... Does that spill over to his brother? Why murder his brother if he's angry with God? God, you don't accept me because you think I'm a sinner, but I don't consider myself a sinner. I'm good enough. You should accept me. Why, are you ang- why do you reject my offering? Why kill his brother? Well, Jesus speaks to this many times in his ministry, particularly towards the very end when he's warning his disciples. And in Matthew 24, 9 and following, he says, They will deliver you up to tribulation and to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. What is he saying? They'll hate you for my name's sake. If they hate God, they hate God's people. They hate his children. They hate everybody associated with him. John says in 1 John 3.12, we must not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. He belonged to Satan, not to God. He was one of Satan's children. He was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. How many times have we talked about that passage in 2 Timothy 3.12 and following? All who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Abel was leading a godly life in Christ Jesus. 
He was glorifying God with his offering. Cain was not. Cain belonged to the evil one. He didn't recognize God as his God. He didn't serve him. He didn't humble himself. He didn't obey. He was evil. Evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is the same thing Jude is talking about. But I'm applying it back to Cain. Cain persecuted Abel because Abel wanted to glorify God and Cain did not. And when God rebuked him, he became angry with God and that spilled over to Abel, who was trying to lead a godly life. Uh, And while the evil people and imposters, the false teachers that we're reading about in Jude, they go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you have learned it, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. We mustn't forget the second part. You know, they persecute us because we belong to God, and in our belonging to God, it is seen because we have that love of Scripture. We know what God wants. We desire what God wants. Cain and Abel could talk to God. He appeared to them. They could talk to Adam, who was with God in the beginning, their father. They knew probably better than we do. They knew God. And yet he was rejecting God. He hated his brother because he was evil. And his brother was living his life for God. We can also learn from the result of his actions. Read in verse 14, oh, they will kill me. Anybody who finds me will kill me. He's worried about justice. And that justice is real. God gave the law to Noah in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Lashing out at Abel was not just lashing out at his brother. Lashing out at his brother who was made in the image of God and who served God. He's lashing out at God. And he understands the price for that is his own life. But God was very gracious. He put a mark on him so he wouldn't be killed and warned that he'd not be be killed. But what does Cain do? Does he humble himself? Does he repent of his sins? I murdered. I rejected you. I am a sinner. Have mercy. No. He goes out from God and finds a place to live away from God where God is not. The... This is being used as an example of these false teachers. They get into the church, but what happens? They don't know the atonement. They don't belong to God. Jude says they're already condemned. That's what they were. Their condemnation was written before they were even born for what they're going to do. They want to lead people away from God. They persecute the people of God. And they want to be apart from him. That's why they pervert the scriptures. That's why they turn the scriptures around and make them say the opposite of what they say. Because they don't know him, they don't want to be near him, and they don't like his people. And that's why schisms come into the church over false teachings. And people sometimes don't understand that. Oh, you know, we need to show love. We need to be together. 
No, you're going to follow the way of Cain. These people are hating God, hating his people. And if you start following them and accepting them, what's going to happen to you is you're going to be led away from God. It's a sad thing. So first he uses Cain as his first example. Then he goes on to Balaam's error. Now, if you want to read about Balaam's story, he's talked about in Numbers 22 to 24. And then Numbers 25, his name is not mentioned, but we see the result of what's being called Balaam's error. The error here is not the error Balaam made, but the error Balaam introduces to God's people. It's active, not passive. The error he caused Israel to make. So the main story, and I'll summarize because I'll run way out of time and we'll miss lunch. (laughs) Balak, the king of Moab, sees Israel traveling to the promised land. Israel's been attacked and completely annihilated the enemy. And he's terrified. He sees them as a threat. So he hires Balaam to curse Israel. In Numbers chapter 22, verse 6, he says, he sends the message, Now come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So apparently Balaam was known as somebody whose blessings and curses had power. Balaam wants to go, Balaam, but he seeks permission from God, and God tells him not to go. I have blessed these people, Israel. He wants to curse them. Do not go. So Balaam sends them home. They return with more numbers. And again, Balaam says, well, let me see what the Lord says. And he says to the people, even though... Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold. I would not go beyond what the Lord God, my God, to do less or to do more. In other words, God is the one who decides who he blesses and curses, not Balak. This time, God gives him a different answer, though. In verse 20, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them but only do what I tell you. Then in verse 22, he's going. God's anger was kindled because he went, and an angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. As he was riding his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And we all know the great story of the donkey trying to save his life from the angel and then talking to him in the end. God told him to go. Why was God angry? Why was God going to destroy him? And the first few times you read through this, it doesn't make sense. What's the problem? Why did God say go and then God be angry? Well, because there are details that aren't in there. And the details are elsewhere. Uh, Anyway, after the whole angel of the Lord incident in verse 35, the angel of the Lord says to Balaam, go with these men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went with the princes from Balak, and he went to curse them. Four times Balak asked Balaam to curse them, to curse Israel, and four times God gives him a blessing to recite in front of Balak. He didn't seem to listen. So what's the problem? 
God told them to go. Why was God angry? He did what God told them to do. Why was God angry? Well, we have to look elsewhere in scriptures. As soon as he goes home, what happens in the next chapter? Chapter 25 of Numbers, verse 1 and following. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the, son, with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to their sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you, kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Wow. So what happened? These are the people, the Moabites, are sending their daughters to entice the Israelites, sexually, apparently, whoredom. And in the process, they are winning them over and they are following them. And they are going so far as to not only attend their parties, to bow down before their idols, but to worship their idols, giving themselves over to Baal. Jesus himself tells us where Balaam went wrong. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, he's telling the church, I have these things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So what happened? Balaam was offered money to curse Israel. He couldn't curse Israel because God didn't allow it. According to Jesus, he taught Balak how to, how to get Israel, how to curse Israel. Get them to worship your gods. Send your girls as prostitutes to whore with them. Entice them that way. And trick them into coming to the temples to offering sacrifices to God. In other words, appeal to their desires and use their desires to ensnare them, to turn them away from the true God to false gods. And then the true God will be angry with them. Ingenious. And according to Jesus, that's what happened. That's why we go from Balaam not being able to curse them to Israel being in big trouble. And that's why God was angry, because he knew his heart. He knew his intent. He wanted the money. One way or another, he was going to get the money. If God wouldn't allow him, you know, he couldn't get it through God, he would get it through going against God. And he went against God. Now we read his demise in Joshua 13.22. Balaam is one of the people put to death because he practiced divination. He was killed by the sword when the people of Israel came into the land to take their land, to take the promised land. He was executed with them because of what he had done. Peter gives us a few more details in his passage in 2 Peter 2.14 and 15 talking about these those people. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. 
Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. But not completely, of course, restrained, because he went back to his sin. But that's it. For the sake of money, he was willing to go against God. For the sake of money, even though he was a prophet, even though God spoke to him, his desire for money was greater than his desire for God. Man cannot serve two masters. He forsook God for money. And worse, he corrupted the people of God for his own personal profit. How do you get to be rich? How do you get to have a mega church today? You tickle the itching ears, as Paul says. You tell them what they want to hear. No, sin is not sin. God wants you to sin because he wants you to be happy and sin makes us happy. Now, they don't say it like that. But that's what they're saying. And they lead people astray. Balaam's error was teaching people to give in to their, pla- give in to their passions and their desires, to listen to their dreams and their visions, and to turn away from God for the things of the world, for greed, for pleasure. He accomplished this by getting them first enticed with unbelieving women and then turning them to whoredom, turning them to idolatry, using those manipulations. Right? They get the foot in the door, they pry the door open a little more, a little more sin, a little more corruption, a little more unbelief in their teaching. These false teachers that Jude is complaining about and condemning, they turn people to their passions away from God because they wanted God to curse his people and because they wanted money. And we see that to this very day in false teachers. Not being sincere, but after greed, after money. He gives us a third example. So first we have the way of Cain. Hating God, rejecting God, wanting to do it our way. Not believing us sinners, but believing ourselves and our desires and our sin holy. Hatred for God and murder of his people. Balaam turning people away from God for money, for profit, for pleasure, and turning them to pleasure to turn them away from God. Now we have a third story, Korah. Korah's rebellion. We read that this morning because it was a shorter passage we could handle. Korah was a Levite. He rose up and had 250 of the chiefs of the congregation, the leaders, on his side, and he denounced Moses for going too far. Now, we didn't read the passage that is probably the responsible for this. How did Moses go too far? Probably referring to the previous chapter, near the end of the chapter, the chapter is about giving all these laws, and in the middle of it, well, the people were in the wilderness, Numbers 15, 32 and 30 to 36. The people in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And so those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they put him into custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, he shall be put to death. 
All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now that would be scary to anyone who completely rejected God and his word and his law and his right to pass laws and decide how things should be. That would be terrifying. Because they see God is following through with what he said. Back in Exodus uh, 31, verses 14 and 15, God said, you should keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. You know, God himself was their king. God himself was their God. God himself was with them. He spoke to Moses, his glory shone in the temple or the, the tent of meeting. And they saw this and they knew God was there. And, well, God may be my king and God may be here and God may be talking to us, but I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to obey his word. That's what happened. And the, those who say, I don't like God, I don't want his word. I don't want to follow him. I don't want to do what he says. I don't want to forsake my sin. I don't want to live my life for him. I want to live it for me. When they see God exercising justice on those who have rebelled against him, they're not going to be happy. And I think that's what happened here. When they assembled themselves together, as I mentioned when we read number 16, they said to Aaron and to Moses, you've gone too far probably referring to this death, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. In other words, they're holy. You have no right to judge them. You have no right to put them to death. But it was God who said to do it to Moses. So they're essentially claiming, though, that the Lord was with them, that what they were doing was acceptable, and that nobody had a right to judge them in God, in Christ, in Scripture. And that's what we hear today. Is it not the false teachers in Jude's day all the way down to today? They follow in Korah's rebellion. No, God does not have the right to interpret his own word. God does not have the right to give commands. God does not have the right to issue statements about how we should live our lives. And the church has no right to enforce those things, no right to put people out, no right to judge people as sinners, because we're all holy in God. We've all been covered by the blood of Christ. This is a teaching that has continued on, a belief that has continued on. Those who don't know God don't know the difference that he makes in, their, in our lives. And many people who do know God can be led astray that way. And so they were saying the Lord was with them and against Moses that Moses was in the wrong before the Lord, which was absurd because the Lord was talking to Moses. And hence we have that development where the Lord appears to them and rebukes them and punishes them. How dare you, you know, in your false beliefs and you're saying that it's acceptable and holy, how dare you rebel against me and my authority? And that's Korah's rejection. Rebellion, despising and rejecting the authority of Scripture, 
claiming themselves and their sins to be righteous, to be servants of God, defending those who have turned from God and encouraging the people to reject him. God had appointed Moses to reveal his will to the people. Moses was writing the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. He was speaking to them as the prophet of God. They wanted to replace that authority with their own. And that's what the false teachers do in Jude and all the way to today. They want to replace the authority of Scripture with the authority of their feelings, of their visions, of their desires. Reimagine a God who serves you well by deciding what you want and making that what God wants. Whereas the Christian comes to the Bible and says, Oi, everything I know is wrong, but I'm going to do what God says. I came to that point not long after becoming a Christian because I was listening to the Bible going to and from work every day. And every day I was like, but that's the opposite of what I've believed all my life. That they, they will tell you, these false teachers, the authority of Scripture is not there. The authority should be our heart. And Scripture that we can twist to make agree with our heart, with our desire, with our passions, with our visions, you know, then we use that Scripture and... Scripture that doesn't agree with what we want to believe, that scripture we say is wrong or irrelevant or you know, you're being a fascist and a Nazi for pointing that out. And so there's the, the, the core of the problem. These false teachers in Jude are the same thing as the Korah and his followers, the same thing we deal with today all the way along the line. You know, we have women leaders, the LBGT movement, the racism, both the hating of black people and the critical race theory on the other side, Uh, all the anti-Christian religions that have now become Christianity, Karl uh, Karl Marx's socialism has replaced the Bible in many churches. All of these things, that's what's going on. Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy 3. He says, understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Balaam's error, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. People are trying to appear in the church. He's not talking about the godless world outside the church. He's talking about those people who are trying to appear godly in the church, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power to turn from sin. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres imposed Moses, so these people opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all, just as it was with those two men. So he uses a different example, not Korah, but Janus and Jambres, who also staged a rebellion against Moses and Aaron and against God. But pretty harsh, but he's saying much just as harsh as Jude, 
just as harsh as Peter in the parallel passage in Second Peter chapter 2. These people are destroying the work of God and the church of God. And they get away with this. They get away with this in the church. They're able to creep into the church, establish their teaching, lead people astray, split churches or take over churches for one simple reason. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about Roman Catholicism, and I mentioned that Mary is considered our co-redeemer and that nobody can be saved without Mary. And yes, every time I've mentioned that, in a bigger church, somebody who was saved out of Roman Catholicism by reading their Bible comes to me and says, I didn't know that was what they believed. And so I said, yeah, sure, here. Sure, their catechism, the here, 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 here. Papal bull, here, 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 here. Say those things. But they don't know what they believe. They've never read the documents about their, their religion. And many false religions and many cults, if you try to witness to those people, you'll find they don't know what their cult believes. They'll talk about how, you know, they have hope, how, how they feel good, how good the people are, and how loving they are to helping them to come to this false religion. But they don't know what they believe. And that's fine for these false religions, but is that really good for Christianity? Many Christians have no idea what the Bible teaches. They have no idea what it says. Now, when I became a Christian, I think it was probably I'd read the Bible cover to cover like three times before I started to really understand things because I needed that whole paradigm shift. I needed to understand the things that happened in the Old Testament, like the stories we read today and how that applies in the New Testament, how it's interpreted and what it means to my life into how I should live. Uh, those things weren't easy to figure out. And going through the Bible again and again and again helped me get the big picture. Once I had the big picture, then I could start understanding things. But when I was trying to join the church, one of the elders asked me if I had ever read the Bible. And I said, yeah, I've read it. I think at that point I'd only read it twice. I said, I've read it twice. And you know, I'm working on it again because I don't quite understand. One of the elders said, wow, I've never read it through. <laughs> but it's true of elders. How much more is it true of the common Christian? We don't know what we believe. And so when a false teacher comes in, we don't know the difference. They can give you, it'd be like somebody in a store paying you back in Monopoly money. And you're saying, oh, wow, five on, thank you. And taking the money and then getting home and finding out it was worthless. Well, many people are listening to these false teachers and they're going to get to heaven and find out, or get to the judgment and find out it was worthless. It wasn't God. It wasn't what he said. How do we know what things are? Well, we read the Bible. We study the Bible with the right purpose in mind. Many people study the Bible to be happy, to find comfort, to prove their theology, to justify their beliefs, to justify their sin. But if you really want to know God, you want to be near God, then you need to study the Bible with that plan, that desire. I am reading this so that I know what God wants. My ideas, my heart, my will, my visions, my dreams are not God's. My ways are not God's ways. His are infinitely perfect and above me. And so when I read the Bible, I read it for the purpose of knowing what God wants from me. And how I can please him. 
how I can glorify him, and yes, how I can enjoy him forever. But I do that by drawing near to him. And we need to leave then the false teachers and look for the true ones. Now, I've met pastors who get very angry when their people are reading, talk about reading this book or that book or this. It's like, don't be proud. Humble yourselves. If the person is godly, nobody's perfect. But if they're a godly, truth-teaching teacher, I'm happy to have you listen to them on sermon audio or read their books. Get excited about God. You know, pick the good ones. Test them. Like the Bereans, discard the bad ones. When in doubt, ask. And that helps us to draw nearer to God, to know God, and then to recognize false teachers. I remember in seminary, Len Pine telling us, Dr. Pine, that for people who work for the treasury who detect detect counterfeit money, they don't give them a hundred different kinds of counterfeit money and make them memorize those. You know what they give them? Real money, lots of it, of all ages. You feel it, you twist it, you smell it, you look at it, you check the colors. You become intimately knowledgeable of it. And the moment you pick up a fake bill, oh, this doesn't feel right, oh, this doesn't look right. They know because of their intimate knowledge of the real thing. And the Christian's intimate knowledge of the Bible will help us to immediately recognize, oh, that's wrong. And of course, the spirit in us, if we are truly saved, will also help us to say, oh, that's wrong. If we know God's word, we'll know what's right and wrong. If we don't know what's God's word, then false teachers in a church, in our friends, on the radio, in a book, they'll own us. They'll take us away from God and lead us into suffering. And that's not what we want. And that's Jude's point in writing his book, writing us to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. What we have is what we need to know. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many things written in your word that help us to recognize the difference between drawing near to you and teachings and ideas and practices that will only lead us away from you, that will lead us to suffering, that will lead us to death. And we pray you would help us to, to know your word, to grow in our knowledge, to commit ourselves to knowing you and what you desire, to setting aside our own knowledge, our own wisdom, our own wants, our own needs, and seeking you in Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.